All right. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John and our guest, Carl. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. So Carl has stepped in during the pandemic to record with us remotely, and Carl is a current member of the Naples Writers Workshop, and that's where we met him. But Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you write? Well, thanks, by the way, for inviting me to this. I had spent some years as a, as a journalist and a, and a writer, mostly primarily of travel books and travel journalism, also a magazine column and a newspaper columnist, Cape Cod Times, some years ago. And and I uh, have been writing fiction all along. I published a few stories here and there and, and a, a collection um, with SUNY State University of New York Press, SUNY Press, a collection of short stories and also a novel with Northwestern University Press. Here's the plug, Know It By Heart. And so uh, that's what I do now. I, I uh, After spending about 18 years at the university at Albany, in Albany, New York, I now just write fiction all the time. And at the university, you were, I think, in their PR department? I was the, the, the their uh, media relations director. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, we journalists don't become professors. We become PR spokespeople. <laughs> in our second life. Yes. True. It's true. <laughs> Very good. Well, so we're giving you the option to pick a story this week because you're joining us. So tell us what you picked. I picked The the Pugilist at Rest by Tom Jones. And the reason I picked it is I, I love Tom Jones' writing. And this is one of his more well-known pieces. Um, as a matter of fact, it is, I think, his first huge piece. It was in The New Yorker in 1991. And then it became the title of his first collection of short stories in the mid-90s, The Pugilist at Rest. But it's a, it's just a terrific story. And I can see why it, it got all the accolades that it did when it came. Why don't you read a section for us? I think you're going to read that first paragraph for us. I am. I, it's, I always thought this was a great opening. Hey, baby got caught writing a letter to his girl when he was supposed to be taking notes on the specs of the M14 rifle. We were sitting in a stifling hot Quonset hut during the first weeks of boot camp, August 1966, at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. Sergeant Wright snatched the letter out of Hey Baby's hand, and later that night in the squad bay, he read the letter to Marine recruits of Platoon 263, his voice laden with sarcasm. Hey Baby, he began, and then as he went into the body of the letter, he worked himself into a state of outrage and disgust. It was a letter to Rosie Rottencrotch, he said at the end, and what really mattered, what was really at issue, and what was of utter importance was not Rosie Rottencrotch and her steaming hot panties, but rather the muzzle velocity of the M14 rifle. Yeah, what an opening paragraph. Yeah, that kind of of gives you a picture of of a a good picture, as it turns out, what's going to be happening in the next paragraphs. I liked it. One thing is I liked, I don't know, it's a a small thing in the greater universe of writing, but uh, his nickname for this guy, Hey Baby, was just brilliant, I thought. Yeah, tell us us why you picked this story, like why it stuck with you. It stuck with me. In a lot of ways, this story is not unlike, you know, stories of sort of compromised heroes or people who are wrestling, struggling with their inner demons is, is not uncommon. But this was so vivid and so sort of in your face. I think the writing is partially why I picked it. This, the story itself, the, the plot and all that was very compelling, but the writing itself really moved it along. And I thought, I really thought that, that Jones, I think Jones is 
He's no longer with us, but I think he was brilliant. I think he was he had a great run of some great writing, and and he wrote about the degradation of humanity or degradation of of human beings really vividly. I thought, and he, and he brought it to the forefront. And he was himself in that crowd, in that group. So I think he was he was tapping some inner knowledge and inner wrestling that he would, himself was having. I read a little bit about him to prepare for this, and talked about how he himself was the Vietnam vet, and his dad was a boxer, and then. After the war, he became a janitor and always liked reading, but maybe wanted to get into writing. Anyway, he says that he spent one year reading 10,000 books, which sounds like a lie. But um, if that's what it takes to get good, he did it. And um, then it talked about how, he, of course, he got his MFA at the Iowa Writers Workshop, yeah. so now I hate him. Yeah. Which, helped. Like, Which helped. <laughs> yeah, like a Vietnam veteran just reads 10,000 books and then gets into Iowa Writers Workshop. And I'm over here like, I think I'll write for a living and I can't do it. So Yeah. I, you know, th- and when and th- those stories are wonderful. I love those stories. They're, they're you know, they're not, you know, this was not a um, born with a silver spoon in his mouth kind of guy. This was a a working class hero who had some real issues, real real problems, and including some of the things that apparently happened to him and that he did in Vietnam, which was uh, another sort of part of this this story and and his writing that I I really enjoyed. Vietnam writing, writing about the Vietnam War and parts of the Vietnam War are, I've always been attracted to that era of writing. And mainly because, well, I lived, you know, it sort of in that era. Oh, yeah? And I, yes, I, I did. I'm not going to say I, I yeah, but I did have bone spurs or anything. <laughs> I did. I did. I was actually um, in the draft. I just didn't get drafted because the end of the war, my brother and I both, as a matter of fact, the end of the war happened about the time that we were eligible for the draft. Wow. So we registered, but never got called. And that's a whole story in itself. I think. So there's a generation of young people, men and women both, who experienced that war in a much different way, much, much different way than the young generations experienced the World War II or even World War I. It's a whole different game, the way we viewed the war and the way we view going to war. Right. When I learned that he had been a veteran himself, I kind of realized that this is what people talk about when they say, like, write what you know. And the strongest part, I think, of this piece is the voice. And it's authentic. And this can't be faked. Someone that had not been to war or was not even, like, born in that era would have to work so hard at a story like this to achieve that voice. And sometimes it's like, if you have to work that hard, you sh- you're not the one that should be writing it. Right. Not to say that, like, you can't write about experiences that you haven't had because I think that's a really good exercise like as a human to try to understand but this is a guy that knocks it out of the park because it was his experience it was and there's a specialized language that you use around you know that he uses around the whole marine marines experience which I, I always found it fascinating. I mean, there's a language to everything. Every profession, every group has their own sort of way of communicating and lingo. And the army or the military is one of the biggest. I mean, a lot of the words and phrases and so on and so forth are really very rich in, in and of themselves. But only, like you said, only a person who's been there would have all that knowledge and all the that background to write that. And it, if you didn't, it wouldn't ring true. I could never do it. Right. I, yeah, I think that's the point is like, you might be able to achieve it, but you're not going to be able to like make it feel natural. And that's usually like the missing piece. Right. 
What did you like about the story, John? Or did you hate it? No, I, I love this story. I thought it was pretty amazing. The voice, obviously, is a great part of the story. I thought his description, the, the lingo, the descriptions, there's just something about this that just really pulled me in. Even though, you know, this is told in a way where he has digressions, he jumps around, he'll break into a scene to tell us about something else. But I'm always right there with him. It was amazing the way this is put together. There's that scene when, when they're having the firefight in Vietnam and uh, his the lieutenant is shooting off and then he gets um, gets shot and killed and just I wrote wow next to that paragraph because there's there's something just brilliantly depicted there and I think that is how I felt about most of this just the depictions are amazing I really like this story you wrote wow next to the that final paragraph where he's killed or just like that whole section it was kind of the whole section but yeah. the um, the where I put the wow was where the lieutenant is uh, he winds up as a tripod after he's killed yeah, because there's some, I don't know what it was about that paragraph. There's some, some just the the imagery, the the way it played out, the way it was written, it was just really intense. It was good. When, he, when you mentioned the tangents and kind of being right there along with it, I think if you want to do tangents correctly, especially if someone's not familiar with your work, you have to kind of earn them or else you're going to lose people. And this feels like a story where he earned it because we were all pulled in by the, the characters in that opening scene and his voice. So that by the time he's like going on on, on about something, you kind of do want to hear his perspective because you kind of like him as a character. You like him as, as your narrator. You know, one of the things that occurs to me about this guy, I like this guy. He doesn't like himself, though. Yeah. And he, it's very clear, especially toward the end. It's It struck me that he was so deeply into wrestling with himself, with, with his inner nature. I mean, he talks about the ultimately, you know, here was a guy who went in gung ho into the war, listened to the speeches of his sergeant, you know, his the, those inspirational speeches the sergeant makes and really buys into it. And after that firefight that John's talking about, when, you know, his good friend is killed and he and he sees that guy, that pose, that dead, you know, lieutenant just with his arm out. I think he said something like, he, so he, he looked like Al Jolson singing one of his songs and, you know, his head bowed and arm out. But uh, ultimately he doesn't like himself for the, the despicable things as he described it, that he's done during the war, during his three tours. I and mean, this is a guy who signed up for two more tours after his first one. And yet I am compelled to, I, I felt like I really like this guy. I wish he would sort it out. You know, I wish he would, you know, it, it was a, it was a, a hidden wish. It's not obviously not going to happen in the story, but it was one of those things you think when you're reading a story is like, maybe this guy could have had a good life. Right. I didn't really understand fully the guilt that he was dealing with until like much later on in the story. So you don't like know, I don't think right away that he doesn't like himself, but that's just, um, we talk sometimes about like unlikable characters and like, can you still enjoy stories with them? And we agree he's a likable character, but he's also done horrible things. And I think what makes him likable in this sense is that he's humble, like he knows and he's like self-aware. Yeah. It's an interesting character. He says at one time, it's at one point I wrote, I wrote this down. He said that after he had, Attacks, hey baby, because hey baby was hassling his friend. He said, I wouldn't have cared in the least if I'd killed him. But then later, after he is the only one who survives that firefight in the jungle in, in Vietnam, 
And he lies about it. And he says he was the one who saved, you know, who took out all those NBA soldiers. And, and then he says, but if they'd given me the Medal of Honor, I would have let that heavyweight kill me when he was getting into a boxing match later. So here's the dichotomy. He would have killed Hey Baby and wouldn't have bothered him. Yet if they had decorated him for this lie, the honorable thing would not would have been not to lie, but he did. And, and if they had decorated him after his lie, he would have felt horrible about it and let this guy take him out in the ring. Yeah, he's he's operating on like wartime morals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know when we first tried to record this, I was talking about how in a previous episode we had discussed, it was one that Rob picked. It was like that depression era party where like yeah. the soldiers, what's it called, John? What's it called? It was uh, Alice Monroe. Mm. Oh no. Let the record reflect this pause. Voices? Don't edit this. It was Voices. Yeah, it was called Voices. Was it? The one, the one about the party? Yeah. Alice Monroe Voices. Okay, whatever. Anyway. I'm pretty sure. That's the most popular episode on YouTube. Oh, shit. Well, that's all <laughs> really? Alice. Really? Yeah. It's all Alice. In, I think it was in that one of those episodes that we talked about how things like war lend like an, an immediate tone to a story because we as readers are able to just like instantly inform and infuse even those first lines with everything we know about war. So it's almost a cheat that way. <laughs> like if you open any story and it was terrible after the first sentence with something like they were in the barracks and they heard gunfire. Like I see it and you didn't describe it. Like I'm doing all the heavy lifting. And then a really expert writer can benefit from not just the scene setting and all that, but like the tone that it lends because there's several different types of war movies right there's sad ones there's action ones there's like hero villain ones there's like really somber fucked up ones and this one especially when it's vietnam you're using everything you know about vietnam and and reading it that way like it's it's doing so much work and i I know in that episode we talked about other things that do that much work for you as a writer but i can't think of any i think maybe i mentioned like alien movie like alien stories like if you introduce an alien like i've i have a million movies that are doing that tone for me it's not even necessarily books you introduce like a wizard you know anything that you've seen on on screen and it's it's interesting because a good writer like tom jones can despite you reading with all these preconceived notions stand out among war stories right yeah this story has serious resonance with uh full metal jacket i mean the boot camp stuff even what happens to them well it it departs and obviously the post boot camp stuff but you know a suicide versus a near murder to end that Mm -hmm. it all it follows kind of the same trajectory even though the language is the same and that's that's got it comes down to it was marine boot camp and that's what marine boot camp is like so it's going to be similar in a lot of different ways yeah so i could see it all because i seen full metal jacket to kind of boost your point there yeah i don't think it's a bad thing it's just something that, to note. what i liked about that too is that you know and you do see those things and you, you and you see that to a certain degree you see the characters too you know there's always that gung-ho guy and there's always the one who comes to boot camp who's out of shape and never you think oh my god is this you know he's not going to make it or whatever and there's always the psychopath that in this one i it was i was really struck you know by by his friend and here's the juxtaposition too here's his buddy the narrator here and always called the narrator because we don't know his name he never gives us even though this is a very intimate story it's told in the first person which makes it very very intimate and we know what's swimming around in his head all the time we never know his name 
but his friend, so he's gung ho in the beginning and he's listening to the, the inspirational speeches and so on of the Sergeant Wright. Yet his friend Jorgensen is ambivalent about the whole thing. He wants to be this artist in a, in a Soho loft who has nothing to do with war. He wants to write or paint or whatever and he smoke weed all day long and, and hang out, which was which was kind of the ethos of, uh, of a certain group of people in the, in the 1960s too. And he fit right in. But now he's in the Marines. The draft will do that to you, you know? <laughs> I think uh, to your point about like characters like that, I know if not in our podcast, like in our actual workshop, we've talked about things like the gang of teenage boys or the gang of eight-year-old boys, how they're in every Stephen King novel. But when you have a any kind of like a group like that, people fall into those like tropes and, and they inform something and they, they, that does a lot of legwork like, for you. Or if you have like a, a group of teen girls, like wheels are turning. And, and then if you can distinguish them like he has, and obviously that's what you remember from the story is Hey Baby. It's obviously a unique name, but he's been distinguished for the fact that he was writing this letter. And I think if his name was something else, you'd probably still remember him as a unique character. Right. I had this feeling, I remember this the first time I read this, that Hey Baby was going to show up again somewhere because he didn't, he didn't, when he thunked him in the head with his rifle butt, he didn't kill him. And I thought that maybe this, he was going to be used for something and he didn't really, he fizzled out except at the end, which is another great paragraph in this, in this story. He decides that he's going to maybe look up Hey Baby and do what I, I, you know, what can you do after you almost killed somebody? But he's going to look him up and because he thinks that they're, they're sort of on the same suffering level now and of course he's suffering greatly right what did you guys think of this whole reference to the statue for which this is named I know like when I got into it, it was it was kind of like out of left field. It felt like one of his tangents, not his point. So I like how it kind of snuck up on you. Like he's just talking about like the statue in great detail. And I really appreciated like how that all like coalesced. I think Rob would like this story, like stories that mirror art that way, right? Like it's almost as if he could have like seen this statue and that could have been what sparked this story. I don't know. It added like such an interesting level, especially because what we know about these stereotypes of war characters like we talked about i mean for vietnam it's different because there's a draft so like maybe it is a stereotype that one of these guys has intimate knowledge of this piece of art I was going to say two things. One is that, um, as you know, in journalism, when you write a story and you, you hand in your piece, you don't pick the headline. You know, you, there's people who do that, right? It's, 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 it's not the, it's rarely the writer. Uh, it depends on how newsrooms are made up these days, but uh, it's usually your copy editor, someone whose job it is to pull together the headlines all over. So in a way, and I see this online, by the way, too, I see a lot of people screaming at journalists for, you know, the, the headline, not following the uh, the rest of the story and stuff like that when it's never their fault. So I wondered why he named this pugilist at rest when I first saw it. You know, I thought, well, he did it. So he picked it. And I saw this when it popped up. It was such a vivid side, a side, but sidebar. You know, and it, and it, I can see why he had to do it. I took it sort of, and I'm not sure that he was doing this consciously at the time, but it was a, like a metaphor for here's a guy who is sort of a Sisyphus character. You know, his life is, he's gone into the ring, strapped to a rock 
rock and pound the hell out of another guy 14, what is it, 14,000 times or whatever number of times, kills them each time. And each time his life is on the line as he goes into the ring. And I think that gut feeling was what a lot of people were having about Vietnam and war at the time. You know, this futile exercise where you just go in and you pound the hell out of people and it never changes. You do it again and again and again. And you have the heart of a warrior, the soul of a warrior. And as he described in detail, the body of a warrior, but you make no headway in life. There's nothing that changes. You're a slave who is there for other people's entertainment. And if you kill someone, you live and you do it over and over and over again. It's kind of a bleak view of, of life. Right. Certainly a bleak view of war, but I think very accurate. I think that certainly my feeling was that that's the way Tom Jones was feeling about it ultimately. Yeah. Something about this feels very authentic too. Like if I was to set out to write a war story and be super cool about it, I'd pick a piece of artwork and compare it to that, you know? And it would be like, did you pluck this out of thin air, Christine? And I'd be like, yes, I did. And for this guy, it feels like this was a comparison he had made and let marinate before he did anything with it. I think it's it's telling where it happens because it's after the firefight and he's talking about kind of the uh, what happened in the aftermath. He calls down the na- napalm and um, blows everybody up, kills all the uh, North Vietnamese. And then he's talking about the, the Lance Corporal that they'd sent ahead to like run across the field and what had happened to him. And he's, the character is pissed off that the lieutenant right yeah well, he was pissed off the, mil- the lieutenant had sent the corporal because he was a, a what they, you know a short timer he was going to be gone in 12 days go back home and then at that moment he's like 12 days to go and then mutilated fucking milton fucking second lieutenant and then he cuts in theogenes was the greatest of gladiators and he talks about this statue for uh, talks about theogenes and then he talks about the statue that might depict theogenes and then he cuts back to into the scene i cut and ran from that field in southeast asia i've read that davy crockett hero of the american frontier was cowering under a bed when santa anna and his soldiers stormed at the alamo what is the truth but then he, he goes on and there's a paragraph he's like i got over that first scare and saw that i was something quite other than that which i had known myself to be hey baby proved only my warm-up act there was a reservoir of malice poison and vicious sadism in my soul and it poured forth freely in the jungles and rice paddies of Vietnam. I pulled three tours. I wanted some payback for Jorgensen. I grieved for Lance Corporal Haynes. I grieved for myself and what I had lost. I committed unspeakable crimes and got medals for it. It's like he's he inserted that discussion about Theogenes and the uh, and the statue right before he d- explains what happened to him. And so we make this connection between the two. I was like, he's like, this statue is me, and I'm gonna I'm telling you how I became that statue right i like the way he he cut to it too because i I felt like was it jarring for you at all i mean it it wasn't for me but i i liked it and i thought to myself if i were writing this i know what i probably would have done i would have put my little you know couple of little stars to separate this from the scene that we're in and do my little sidebar and then come back but he just the next graph he just moves right into it yeah you're right carl i would i would have done something too where i like really finessed it too much (laughs) <laughs> right, right. So you don't ups I don't know, upset. So it's people. not like like this the effect here was like it was abrupt and you you're like, oh what's this? This must be the point. <laughs> yeah. No, I like the way he did that. 
the previous section kind of ends. I mean, you could call that an ending of that scene and kind of summarizing like, oh, fucking Milton, fucking second lieutenant. Like, that's my takeaway of this. Right. So the, you can forgive a topic change at that moment. But I think um, we talked about this in another episode where I don't remember how it came up, but I remember describing what I had done something like this in my in a novel. And I, I always went over it. Nobody ever commented on it. But every time I came to that moment in the novel, I always thought, why did I do that? Why, why does it work? Why that just suddenly break from the action into some digression about something and then I come back to it after and come back to the action after that and somehow it works right it especially works if the guy's voice itself is compelling because you're, if you're really into this guy and really into what he's saying and how he's saying it and here's something new and I, I, I just feel like you're gonna you're gonna grant him that leeway to go that way real quickly because you're following him anyway I, I wonder if to your point, John, you're like, I don't know why it works, but if this is a part in your story that you haven't figured out, like, why does that work? Sometimes I, sometimes I have strokes of genius <laughs> and I don't realize that they're happening until like maybe afterwards. And then it's like, holy shit, something is working here. My brain is like absorbing things and doing the work itself. I didn't have to overthink this part. It just really, really, really worked. I don't know. We always talk about how writing's a lot of work, but I think every once in a while, that's like the payoff, right? The first draft just works. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just like a scene or a section, like that you're just like not getting rid of that. That was good shit. Yeah. Yeah. That, those are like the moments between all the terrible other moments that you hope for. Carl, why don't you talk about that last sentence too? Because I know you said you like that, the way it kind of ends about the dogs. I did. I was going to say too that, you know, one of the things that's appealing about Jones and about this story is that to me, I felt like, I'm sure he worked at it. I'm sure he worked hard at this story, but it didn't feel like it. It felt like it was just flowing out of him. And I don't know. I mean, that's not a trait I look for in a story all the time, but when it happens, I think that you feel sort of at ease with the story more so somehow because you're not working either. But this is the penultimate graph. It's um, after after he's talking about his epilepsy and, and so on. Now I'm thinking I might call, hey baby, and ask how he's doing. No shit, a couple of neuropsychs. We probably have a lot in common. I could apologize to him, but I learned from my fits that you don't have to do that. Good and evil are only illusions. Still, I cannot help but wonder sometimes if my vision of the supreme reality was any more real than the demons visited upon schizophrenics and madmen. Has it all been just a stupid neurochemical event? Is there no God at all? The human heart rebels against this. I love that graphic. I think that kind of, it's, it, it's like here he is about to go into this operation to relieve his, to cure his temporal lobe epilepsy. And it's his final sort of declaration. Is, has this all been a stupid, is life, is life and good and evil all just neurochemical reactions to things around us? And Am I really evil? And then that final line is, if they fuck up the operation, I hope I get to keep my dog somehow. Maybe stay at my sister's place. If they send me to the nut house, I lose my dogs for sure. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, what? What is this? He's got dogs? Those were the dogs that turn him over in his sleep to keep him alive when he has his seizures. They drag him around to yeah. make sure he doesn't. Yeah, it, that's pretty amazing. Here's a guy who, he need this, this long sidebar about different people, about epilepsy and different epileptics in history or people who recorded visions and so on from Muhammad in the Koran to uh, who else was it? Dostoevsky was mentioned. Dostoevsky, of course. Yeah. And all these guys and, and their, their raptures sort of as, as they see these and their visions before they go into have their fits. It's all part of it. It's, and he kind of likes that, which I like, which I like about it. He kind of likes that part a little bit. 
but he's also loaded up on drugs at this point and he's, yeah. he's trying to you know he's drinking drugs the whole deal so he's kind of a mess and he knows it and unfortunately so was tom jones at that point in his life i think too he was kind of a mess and he knew it so what would your takeaways be for this i think my takeaway is that the the same thing that's his that there that evil good and evil and heroism and cowardice are all situational and relative in in our world and and his reactions to all the things around him were rather than being morally good or bad they were just real right they were just real and he doesn't i don't think he quite realizes that yet the narrator in the story but i think that you know that's what i take from it Oh, I think that's important for writing, right? Because if good and evil come from the situation, like you say, then then when you're writing something, that's where you put it. You put it in, in the story, in the situation. Yeah. What was your takeaway, John? My takeaway is um, the transitions. I love these transitions. There's something about how he just plops you into the middle of something new. And there's a couple of clues here and there that catch you up. And he does it so smoothly and so well. Even after the little uh, hiatuses, after the little the breaks with this, where the stars are and stuff, he, he starts it off with the other day, Memorial Day, as it happened. And then he mentions more than 23 years ago, like in this next paragraph. But something about, we talked about the, that shift to talking about the statue, even the shift to talking about the main, like the main scene in the uh, in Vietnam that kind of makes the the center of this piece it starts off we were just 3 days in country when we got dropped in somewhere up north near the DMZ it was a routine reconnaissance patrol and that doesn't come after a break just that comes after he's having a conversation with Jorgensen and then all of a sudden we were dropped into the jungle and maybe that's thematic maybe those kinds of shifts are part of what his life was like and you're just like doing one thing and all of a sudden you're doing something else but the way he pulls them off in here i feel like i can just sit down with these and look at the way the sentences, the information is structured, how he presents us with the new scene, how he unravels it. That whole, I talked about writing the word wow next to that center scene, but the beginning of that scene is so beautifully unraveled for us, like getting us into that scene, analyzing that's like a masterclass and figuring out how to enter into scenes. So I just, the transitions, just looking at transitions is something I would take away from this. I'm just going to go back to what I said about how I don't think that you can fake this kind of an authentic voice, but that that authentic voice comes from writing about what you know. And I think sometimes people think that that's really boring, which is fine, but maybe you've had a really boring life. (laughs) But I guarantee too that like there's something that maybe it was an odd job that you had or just like a place where you lived, or maybe you had a bizarre hobby when you were younger that you could write about with an authority that is natural to you. And even if it's not enough for like a plot maybe maybe the goal then too would be to write it in first person can help you like really establish a voice and like know what that voice is because we we talked about this i think in our actual workshop that like people don't know what, what voice means when we say that it's not just like what something sounds like they don't know how it's achieved i guess is the point but what i'm realizing here with this is like there has to be something authentic that you can't fake as a writer you can't engineer a voice having read enough or heard enough in a lot of cases and i think one of the ways that we know almost immediately that a writer's faking it is when they'll write in like a dialect that they don't speak in and it's so heavy-handed that you're like yeah this isn't you and that's part of why i can tell it sucks there's this uh, line right near the beginning speaking of her voice the night he became forever known as hey baby in addition to being a shitbird, a turd, a maggot, and other such standard appellations. <laughs> I love the phrasing there, just that word <laughs> appellations. Yeah. It's it's part of the voice. 
It's like, this is the guy who's telling this from, you know, 30 or 40 years in the future, telling us about that scene. I marked that word. It's like, uh, Appalachians, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy that you can tell read 10,000 books because I learned some <laughs> words. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't sound like he's forcing it either, too. No, it? exactly. That is also something that he's earned. That's authentic. That's not, Christine, did you use a thesaurus? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I can't even say it. <laughs> Very good. Thank you guys for this great episode. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.